So I have questions about SSL and X509 certificates, right? Sure. Uh, so my understanding is SSL <laughs> has recently made changes to where they've deprecated some of the, it's not the CU stuff, but some of the tags you could use have been deprecated. And uh, you now have to roll a new public certificate every year. You can buy for five years, but you, and uh, right, this is stuff that I'm hearing on the side. So I wanted to get your input. And then X509, how, right, I think there's confusion how that integrates with an SSL cert and how the keys are intermingled. I've seen some interesting uh, <laughs> setups there. So question is SSL cert changes, good or bad, and X509 and how it integrates. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Hmm. Not a topic I specialize in, so gotcha. I wouldn't be able to answer that. In fact, that's the first time I hear about the changes to SSL certificates and X509s. Okay, well, then I will, I will see if I can find uh, a link and we'll add to the show notes, right? Yeah. Because you learn something new every, every, every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, things change all the time. Things change all the time. I was uh, I was saying earlier on how I was trying to get Pulumi to work with uh, Keyvault and mm. how I spent a good eight hours trying to get it to work. Obviously, I'm not that clever, but uh, <laughs> I, assuming that I have the intelligence of the uh, the average person out there, I'm not a genius. I never claimed that, but man, it was hard. Uh, all I wanted to do was just to offload my secrets into a third party service like Keyvault, right? Well, I, don't, I didn't want my mm. deployment code for my uh, infrastructure as code to include any secrets. That's another uh, attack vector, right? Not just code. And now that infrastructure yeah. is code, then that's another place where secrets tend to leave. And as I try to promote best practices, I'm like, you know what? Let's update the Pulumi stuff to use uh, Azure Native. And I got stumped. Like, it was so hard to do it. If, if somebody uh, has done it and they're listening to the show right now, please reach out. I did have to, like, I, I've poked around and spoke to people. So I think I have a solution uh, that I can work with. But mm -hmm. things that work very easily with other infrastructure as code tools, they didn't. So imagine as a company, you're like, hey, let's, uh, we have some really good comments about X tool. And you bring the experience from previous similar tools and suddenly, you know, the security is hard. Obviously, I don't want to isolate Pulumi because there are other tools out there that give you a lot of challenges. And as things change, sometimes there are scenarios that people don't realize that they need to be covered. But for me, I was like, man, that was, uh, that was challenging. So That's am I actually, going to give up um, or am I going to persist there for the, for the weekend to find the solution? 
That's the well, I think as a developer, you, you kind of don't have an option, right? In most cases, you have to persist yeah. until you figure it yeah. out, wh- whether the solution is an ideal solution or not, right? I did find a couple of links. So the okay. maximum SSL certificate validity has been reduced to one year. Good. As of 2021, something. So it's actually been for a little while, but we're just running up against it, right? And it says, you know, longer validity periods lead to possible issues with security and with requiring it every year you have a, a enhanced identity the uh, identity authentication mm-hmm. so yeah and that's i mean that's all it's it doesn't make things easier on us but it definitely forces things to be more secure at least in certain contexts Correct. which i think is good but you're you now, talk about Paloom changes like this and, go ahead changes yeah. like this would need to come t- with the appropriate tools to allow you to mm. automate the process so they might say hey we made the the self life of these certificates much uh, much shorter, but this mm-hmm. is the command that you need to use. Maybe you can automate the the rolling of the keys by running this script. And this is yeah. this is what we like as an industry. We make things harder, or or, or we lock down security, but mm-hmm. then we let you get we let leave you with guessing what is the best way to solve the problems. And there are mm-hmm. some companies that do a fantastic job in saying we change this for X reason to make security harder. Sorry, make security better. But these are all the things or the steps that you need to follow to now adapt your processes to abide to this one. These are the scripts. This mm-hmm. is the code. These are the code samples that we do. I like it. I mean, secrets and like we talk about service principles. We had a, a very lengthy discussion the other day what service principles are. Azure Active Directory is service accounts that can run things for you as an automation account. Mm-hmm. They're usually non-interactive. So you issue a username and a password in effect and you store it somewhere and runs tasks for you in the cloud or otherwise. The challenge there is that these are credentials that people may have access to, and they need to mm. be rolled. They need to be short-lived. Again, we, we are forcing much uh, shorter defaults for these accounts. In the past, it was a year. Now we're making it six months out of the box. And it can be customized mm. as well. People And certificates are the same. You need to have a, a process where these things are rolled frequently. The fact that now only for one year, it's great. But you know, people were afraid to change things because they were afraid that things would break. So right. this is where testing comes in, where you go through the process of changing the keys or updating all your NuGet packages uh, and see what happens. I've done this in the past. God, that was like, I remember working on a large project and we had you know a lot of NuGet packages and they were all out of date, but nobody wanted to touch them. So I took it upon me to update all the NuGet packages and lo and behold, I broke the, I broke the source code. I broke the code base. I had to spend uh, days to try to fix things. But uh, mm-hmm. again... Nuclear packages and, and dependencies are a security issue. So you need to keep them up to date as well. It's interesting. We had our own private NPM server, right? Which a lot of people yeah. do, right? Because you don't want to put it yeah. out in public. So you, you have your yes. own. And there are security implications there. Mm-hmm. We recently got rid of that server. And I moved our NPM packages into Azure DevOps, right? Nice which yeah. works and I got it to work out, right? It took me a day or so to get everything set up and and to get the MPMRC stuff done and the tokens working, everything. Got it all working. Yep. But but now that I've done that, I'm the subject matter expert. So yes. anytime anyone pulls down the new code that's pointing to the new MPM, and even though I've got it documented, they're like, Caleb, this isn't working for me, right? I found out that on Mac, right? It's not the same process. You can't do some of the same VSTS stuff. So I had to give them a separate link. And then someone's like, 
well, so-and-so set up a, a token for me in Azure DevOps. And I thought that would work. And I was like, nope, two different things. You know, yep. one is you've got repo access. This one is specifically for MPMC, right? Mm-hmm. So some of this is education. And, you know, it's good to have a subject matter expert <laughs> as long as they're available to <laughs> help when you actually need it. So, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see the challenge. And uh, packages and dependencies are a big thing these days because, mm-hmm. again, I was saying how Travis CI and NPM got hijacked due to that OAuth token. So how do you trust NuGet packages, right? That They become a whole thing now that you have to vet before you onboard into your code base. And that slows things down. But again, there's a compromise between security and speed. Like you want to move fast as a developer, but at the same time, you don't want to break or bring new holes, new security holes into your code base. So mm-hmm. something that we used to do in the past was to use a sandbox to test new packages. Hey, I want to use this uh, new feature. There's a package out there. I can download it. And then we would go to through a submission process where the security team would go and uh, look at the open source code, make sure that everything is fine, and then onboard it to the private repo like you did, where we could pull it for for our code base and make things uh, make sure that things were secure. So developers need to need and want to move fast. We need to give them the tools to to do things. I remember I was working with a cloud customer, and they said their security team came to me and said after the meeting. Hey, how can we lock out the how how can, how can we lock down the Azure portal? So it's like lock down the Azure portal. Yeah, we only give, want to give them access to like five resources that we approve: web apps, functions, SQL Server, and storage. I can't remember what the other one was. Like, oh, I said, I mean, that makes sense from a security perspective. But what if a developer wants to use uh, this new service that we just released and it's super awesome because you can do X? How are they going to find out about that if they can't find it in the portal or if they can't discover it? or they can use it as a, on a trial basis, then how are you going to allow innovation in your code base? And they were like, yeah, we don't like that. We, we, want, to, we want the developers to only use the tools that we approve. And I was like, yeah, I, I can see your point of view, but at the same time, you can really hamper innovation in your company if you do that. So it's, it's weird how developers want to do things and I want to move fast. Like I, I want to build things. I want to see them running. I want to see my... my console printing out this awesome stuff that I pull from somewhere like, yeah, it's working. But at the same time, what we do is we we make things work and then we fix them. Like security and performance tend to be afterthoughts. But it, this is this is bad because if you do that, then uh, your manager will say, oh, you got it working? Right, check it in, move on to the next task. And they're like, no, 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 I need to spend some time fixing. It's like, we don't have time, right? We don't have the resources, we don't have the money, you need to move to the next thing. And now you're building technical debt, both from the code base quality and from from a security perspective. And I've been in teams and organizations that did used to have these kind of standards, and it's hard. It's hard to go against the, the flow. So how, how prevalent are things like backdoors? You know, can I go back to my favorite uh, 80s movie, War Games? You know, <laughs> would you like to play a game? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, do, you mean like... Uh, the developer like throws a secret backdoors into the app that bypasses uh-huh. the identity thing and whatever, so that they can get in without any problems. Super admin. Um, right, yeah. <laughs> Super admin, yeah. It's not that hard. Like, uh, assuming that a developer has the ability to maybe create accounts in the identity yeah, system. Yeah, it's not hard to do. Let's yeah, say Azure Active Directory. Do, but, I mean... Right? Yeah, it's it's not hard to do. So, cre- creating backdoors is not hard. Like creating super user accounts is not the problem. But once you start adding the appropriate tools... Like, let's say, conditional access. Maybe you only want to allow people to access this app from specific resources, maybe inside the VPN. 
or maybe from only specific IP addresses, or maybe only from a jump box on Azure that I can only do certain things with specific accounts. So suddenly you're you're seeing that it's not just the account that is in place, but also how can they access resources? And then can also have risk-based access where you say, or risk-based conditional access where not only do you control access, but if you see something that is malicious, like somebody is trying to log in as me from Germany. Now, my work knows that 99.9% I'm either logging from my home or from office, or maybe from a coffee shop in the proximity. Maybe if I am traveling, it will be somewhere in, in the US. What happens is when that conditional access kicks in, you get either challenge for MFA or you get challenge for a certificate or you know Windows Hello, just to prove that you are who you say you are. And there are also things inside our infrastructure that will prompt for additional login. So if I try to access to my HR data, like I want to see my salary the last time, I will be prompted again for a login. So if I leave my laptop open and somebody goes, oh, Christos is logged in. Let's go and check his salary. And you know people leave open, op- open desktops at the office all the time. But but how how, 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 how should companies be for malicious internal developers? Where if I'm writing the code, more than external, you know, I can, I could be I could write something that says, you know, if I yeah. log in using this password, something so, mm-hmm. super secret, then it just ignores all the other security protocols that are in the system and lets me do whatever, whatever I want. So if you are using an identity service. They, that application will never see your password. They might see your username, right? Because that's something. But the login happens outside the application and the application only gets a token back. Therefore, everything that happened with that username and password, it's in a totally different domain to what your application is doing. The application knows that you're either authenticated or you haven't authenticated. But injecting malicious code, it's not hard. The, and if your company doesn't do pull requests or code reviews frequently to see what the changes are, then that's that's going to be something that developers can push easily. Does your company do uh, audits and reviews? Do they do pen testing on the apps? Do they allow people to come in and do periodic audits on your code? That's another thing. Like I remember working for a company that had an internal pen testing team, or sometimes they would use people from the same team that wrote the software to do the pen testing or do the security test. You can. You're biased. You know all the, the all the things that happen in your application, and you also have a very specific way about how the application needs to be used. And then suddenly you get some random user that has never seen the app, and they will try to break it in so many different ways because they don't know how this thing works. And that's the whole point of getting a third-party auditor to come in and check your things, whether that's a pen test or somebody to come and look at your data or whatever they need to look at. So developers can, and they, they will probably will, especially if they're underpaid, if they're disgruntled, if they don't like what they're doing and they want to, I don't know, there's a lot of malicious things that can happen out there. You need to capture them There's, as early as possible. So I'm here with uh, JD from Raygun. JD, we've been talking quite a bit lately about Core Web Vitals and keeping track of the performance of your applications. And one of the hard things is, is that you kind of get this aggregated data from Google that changes over time, but it's got this lag on it. And I, I think we actually had some folks from Raygun where we were talking about, in particular, this problem and having some some way of getting faster feedback on this kind of a thing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, Google's official guidance is that you should be looking for a RUM tool and not relying on snapshotted data. So Raygun's RUM tool will collect all your core web vitals and 
last time I checked, I think we were at about four to five seconds lag on ingesting data. So pretty close to real time on, wow. on how you're performing there. Um, but yeah, yeah, we have first class support in our real user monitoring product. Yeah, real user monitoring means that each request that comes in, each track that people follow, that's what gets tracked. And so you know your numbers right away. Yeah, that's right. Actual data from actual users. It's so much more valuable than synthetic data. Um, and you also collect it across the entire user base. So you can see like, who are my 1%, you know, most disenfranchised users who experience the worst sort of performance. And, you know, between between us, Chuck, I'm stoked that Google's doing this because as a user of software, I want my software to go fast. And I'm really glad they're creating a business incentive for all of us to work on the performance of our software. Yep, absolutely. So folks, if you want a real user monitoring tool that'll keep you on top of your core web vitals, go check out raygun.com and you can actually just sign up for a free trial. There's another issue, and I think it's much more common these days, is mm-hmm. a developer only staying at a job for one to two years. And maybe over the course of a three to five year period, your whole development team rolls over, right? Or it's a whole new team. Yep. And yep. you have a million lines of code and 30 apps. And no one knows everything. And there's a, there's a lot of gaps there. A lot of institutional knowledge goes away, right? Yep. And you have to start over. How do you handle that? Or do you just, you just roll it up as part of technical debt and something that you just have to, to deal with as a company? Well, yeah, that's a big challenge. And I've been in, in fact, I've been once in a contract where the whole development team walked away. And then they hired 11 contractors to fill in the gaps. Mm. It, it was a weird setup. I don't think I've ever experienced that before. <laughs> and they also had this, they had this massive dependency on consultants to come in and build the in-house system that they were building. And they had to pay a lot of money to keep that talent there. And that was a fantastic team I worked with. But imagine having 11 brand new people joining almost like within a month, trying to revive and build the system uh, that um, the previous people were trying to build. It took us it took us a while to get to grasp with the operation because we didn't know the, the business, right? We didn't know what they were trying mm-hmm. to build. And then we had to understand the, the stack. And then we, we tend to, we ended up rewriting uh, quite a bit. Now, if you have a, a company that has mature software that's been running for a while, and then you just need people to add features here and there, I think that if you get senior enough people that they can understand code bases and do them, you know, add new features, it shouldn't be a major problem as long as the code base has good good principles, like they have good te- unit testing. And I've been in companies that had, had mature software because it was so mature, there was no testing. Like, hey, go and add a button here. That, that was my first day of the job. I was like, I, I can go and add a button? Hell yes. And then I realized that the buttons were created as part of a script that was running on the page. So there was no HTML on the page. It was an ASP.NET like web forms app, but everything was pushed through. So there was JavaScript that was injected in the empty ASPX pages or ASP. Yeah, was it ASPX pages? Yep. It's been mm-hmm. a while. It's been a while. <laughs> so there was JavaScript that was injected into pages at runtime. And then that JavaScript would do queries to the API to pull the elements in. So they were not even <laughs> using JavaScript to build the elements. They had things sitting in a database somewhere, right? Uh-huh. The button lived in the database, that definition, and then there was an API that would pull that information, and the JavaScript will pull that information, and then eventually will appear on the page. So that other button took me three days because I was like, how the hell do I get the data here? So I had to reverse engineer that. And then when I eventually got it to work, it was 
literally testing something, changing something, testing the code, run the code, change it, run again. Mm-hmm. There were no unit tests. There was no unit tests mm-hmm. in the API. There were no unit tests in the database. There were no unit tests or integration tests anywhere in the app. So the only way to build it was to trial and error, trial and error, to get it right. And it was just insane. Like There was so much churn in that job and there were so, so many other things that would go wrong. But imagine like you as a developer, go and add a button. Like, yeah, I mean, I know SP.NET or I know PHP. I know SPA frameworks, Angular. I know where buttons go. And suddenly you see this abomination that was built over five years. Like, who thought about that? Obviously, somebody said, we don't want to tie the UI to you know, to the, the back end. We want to drive everything from the data at one central location. It has to be a database. So the, the thinking was right, but the implementation was awful. And that made everybody's life uh, a living hell. That, that was a system that we had to maintain and we couldn't change, right? So, yeah. I, yeah. I interviewed for a job that had a similar issue. They had no front-end developers, no experience there, but they had really strong SQL guys. And so, all of the HTML existed in PSQL. And I was interviewing for a front-end position. They're like, yeah, man, we really need a strong front-end guy. We're thinking about moving to Angular. We want to do this and that. And so I'm asking questions, right? They're like, yeah, right now everything's fed from the database. I'm like, so what is everything? They're like, oh, the HTML, the styling, everything. And I'm like, really? Okay. <laughs> I was like, that's all I need to know. <laughs> No, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Of course, it was nice meeting. Yeah. I mean, at some point, you yeah. start asking all these because you, you build the experience, right? So uh, towards the end of my consulting days, just before I joined Microsoft, these were the things I would ask, like, what is your CI CD right. process? How often do you push to production? How easy it is to put to production? How much unit testing do you do? What's your test coverage? Uh, what frameworks do you use? So th- th- there are these things that you learn from experience, from painful experience. Suddenly, you like... Mm-hmm you know what, I, I don't want to maintain the system. Thank you very much, but I don't want to work with you. Or you might say, I love this. I want to work for you because you have such good practices. Um, right. But yeah, right. there are loads of things that, can, that have been built over the years that are maintained with uh, duct tape and strings behind mm-hmm. the scenes and people have to maintain them. So you can see how security can be a secondary thing when you try to put a button somewhere and it takes uh, five API calls, right? <laughs> right. So why, so why aren't things secure by default? You know, when you build something, you know, why did they let you make it insecure so easily? Because um, uh, every application is a snowflake. I mean, I get it. When you create something from scratch, when you try to, let's say, ASP.NET new, right? .NET new, ASP.NET web app, make it happen. It is insecure by default because we don't know whether you need to use authentication, whether it's uh, something that eventually will happen. If you know upfront, Easy peasy. There's a there's a flag over there to make it happen for you, and it will be locked down. But most developers start very organically. Like I need to test this thing out. You build a POC, and then somebody says, "Oh yeah, that's working now. Let's add this. Let's add this." And eventually, you build this massive thing that runs uh, critical parts of your business. I would say I would love for things to be locked down by default. If you're deploying something new out of the box, then it should come with the appropriate security settings. I think .NET has done a fantastic job in adding default HTTPS, right? So if you're creating a new web app today, ASP.NET 3, uh, sorry, .NET Core 3, all the way to 7 now, HTTPS, HSTS are all on by default. There's already an app that, you, that authorized just to make sure that you have authorization there. We have course settings. I mean, course, God, I've been caught by course so many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, cross 
uh, cross-origin resource uh, security, right? Sharing. And that was yeah, like something yeah. that could bite you in the butt if you didn't know what you mm-hmm. were doing. But uh, early days, of course, in ASP.NET were like a nightmare to set up. These days, so easy. Like we, we know what needs to happen and we made it easier. So certain parts of the application are secure by default, certain parts are not. And we, don't, we can't be super opinionated about how you do security, right? So let's say we don't want you to store any security settings in your settings.json file for ASP.NET. We're going to use Key Vault. Now, suddenly everybody goes, wait a minute, Microsoft is pushing Key Vault, right? They want us to use Key Vault. They want us to use Azure. We don't like this. So, so you get all these. I mean, I would love for everyone to use Key Vault for the settings, but maybe you want to use HashiCorp or maybe you want to use something else that um, HashiCorp Key Vault or some other solution out there. So we can be opinionated to the point that we don't really upset the masses because once you start pushing things down, I, I, you know, I don't want to get into the identity server kind of thing, but that, that was a big ingestion point at some, maybe a year ago when identity server went private and then everybody was like, why is no Microsoft offering a, a similar thing? But we do offer a similar thing. It's called Azure Active Directory. And everybody was like, yeah, but Azure Active Directory runs on the cloud. We need to run on-prem. And like, well, if you need to run on-prem, there's still paid for versions out there and solutions. And technically you are paying for Azure Active Directory. You're just indirectly getting Active Directory because you have either Azure or Microsoft 365 and most companies out there do that. So it's weird. Like, how do you make sure that things are secure without being opinionated about the tooling that makes everything secure? HTTPS, yeah. it's it's ubiquitous, right? Everybody uses HTTPS. You can get your certificates from wherever you want. We just say, hey, if you're developing, use the developer certificates that make your life easier. But in production, we can't support you. You're on your own. Go and get it. We're not saying, go and get the Azure uh, App Service certificates. But if you want to, we have it there for you. So uh, there's a balance between being opinionated about the security tools that you need to use and how you can lock things down by default without upsetting people. Yeah, yeah. it's it's an interesting conversation yeah. to have. So uh, you mentioned HSTS. You know how important do you think mm-hmm. that is for everybody to to move to? I know a lot of people don't know about it. So first, you know, let our listeners know what HSTS is, and then. Uh, why they should be using it. I think it goes hand, hand in hand with, with HTTPS, right? So it is a protocol to protect your resources and say for how long this should be protected for and cast. And again, with course, if you're using APIs, there are tools in, out there that uh, should be enabled by default. I, I would say the fact that we have them as default these days, it's great. We also did a lot of work with uh, ASP.NET to remove a lot of unnecessary headers that were emitted as part of the responses that we're sending back. So that also adds extra protection. Um, and if I remember correctly, HSTS settings were configurable in .NET, so you could actually change the default ones. But you have to register do- your domain for HSTS because you, what it does is it makes sure that every communication to that domain is via SSL. Even that initial check, DNS yeah. or whatever, to request is via SSL. Correct. So it, say, it says only over HTTPS strict. Um, strict transport security protocol, right? So it de- does force for everything to happen and then you can change the uh, how long, what age, and you need to include subdomains or what have you. And it's yeah, it's super easy in ASP.NET Core, of course. It's uh, it's included there out of the box. Okay. So uh, I think we're getting towards the end of things, but is there any last minute things that you want to let us know that you've seen that people just like should do to make sure that they're secure and let's let's summarize let's summarize what we've talked about today we talked about secrets we want to eliminate secrets so these days my motto is secretless apps secretless code 
if you can eliminate your seekers, you're eliminating a large part of the attack vectors because you're making people's life harder. You're going back to the defaults. Like People don't try to hack frameworks anymore. They don't try to hack operating systems. They try to find the easy way in. So let's remove the easy way in and get people to, like bad people, to try to find the hard way in. And we made it a lot harder for them, whether it's the operating system, whether it's the browser, whether it's uh, the framework. We have thousands of engineers, hundreds of thousands of eyes looking at open source tools out there that are used by ordinary developers so that we don't have to worry about these things. If I am using a framework, then I have confidence in the framework because it's built by someone reputable, whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, like React Native, React. You know, these are big frameworks out there that have had a lot of engineers looking at them. Let's not reinvent the wheel. I don't want people to building their own solutions. And if they can't find something, please reach out to the community to help you out. Because as I said before, it's very unlikely that we're trying to solve a problem, a new problem. It's already been solved somewhere by someone, probably more clever than me and you. But in, in many cases, that goes also to say that just because it's out there doesn't mean that you should trust it. So whether you find something in a blog, Stack Overflow, even sometimes official documentation, question whether that's the right uh, solution or not, because we don't always have the best things out there on the web. I remember a long time ago, I was looking at Password Reset and ASP.NET, and it was this weird blog that was coming always at the top. I think Troy Han talked about it as well, where it was, it, had, it was littered with bad practices. And there were comments there that would say, like, please take the blog down uh, or rewrite it with uh, all this best advice. And this guy didn't bad. So just because it's out there doesn't mean that you should use it. Same for, for packages. Dependencies that you bring into your code, they should be vetted. You should make sure that they're the latest and updated. Uh, so you don't have any CVEs that uh, can be used to uh, hack your solution. And you know we didn't touch things like containers and Kubernetes that also bring another element of you know running somebody else's container without having vetted it properly. That's another dependency in your application. And talked about we also talked about security by default. It's hard because we don't really know uh, what you want to build before. I mean, sometimes you don't even know what you want to build. You just have an idea and you start putting things together. So security comes as a secondary thing, but it should be a priority for developers, teams, and enterprises. Because as, as you said, security is not a thing until it is a thing, and then that's too late. If security becomes a thing for your organization, you probably have had an attack somewhere or data compromised, and we don't want to do that. And yep. the easiest way to address these things is by using off-the-shelf tooling, third-party services that you know have been vetted by your teams, and you know that they can uh, do the job for you, whether it's an identity service, a storage service, a SQL server, or whatever. Just use the right tools. What are some good places to, to go to, to learn how to make things secure? Oof, oof, there's tons of resources out there. I would start with OWASP because if you're building web apps these days, then the OWASP uh, framework is pretty good. Sometimes it comes with recommendations about how to address these issues in your specific framework or language. And sometimes they will also provide you with recommendations. Starting to think as a hacker is also a very good practice. Like Starting to think of how attackers think and getting that mindset is also very useful. There are some fantastic uh, open source and free capture the flag websites out there that you can learn about how attackers try to get access. And that also makes you very mindful. Like, you know what? I use this. Like the, the other day, we were doing one at Microsoft where we got access to one of the servers and we were able to run history on the command line and we found a service principal login in the history. 
So I use that as well. In my power cell, I have Powerline, which uh, you know retains the history of my commands. And because I always sign into uh, to Azure with service principles all the time since I do demos, it's scary that my history is always there. So I have to clear out my history explicitly so uh, it doesn't come up when I do a demo or when I live stream. Because this is how you know people get access to this sort of stuff. Like, it, I, I totally didn't know about history until I did the capture the flag. And I was like, oh my God, for the last 15 years, I've never thought about clearing out my cast in my command line. Now I'm so conscious about it. So you don't know what you don't know until you know it. Doing these kind of fun games and activities and getting to learn and study about security, whether you're from defensive or offensive side of things, it's very useful getting into that mindset. And of course, you know, you can reach out to, to me, you can reach out to other security experts in the, in the industry. Uh, we have a Discord server where people can jump in and ask questions about cloud security and identity and, you know, find your niece and reach out to the right people to get some What's support. What's the, the name of that Discord I mean, server? So people want to find it? Oof. It's, uh, it's the Fortify show. Okay. The, the Redmond show. Okay. Fortify. Great. And if they want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Twitter is the best place to find me. My wife uh, complains about spending too much time on Twitter, but it's, uh, it's it's a great community. It's a great place to be. I know that Twitter gets a lot of bad rap, and as with every other tool, it can be used and abused. But I use it predominantly as a tool for communicating with uh, the community and helping people out. So if you have any questions, reach out. We also do open open hours or office hours, and you can find me on Linktree where you can even book a one-to-one with me if you have, like, serious questions and one find out. Hopefully we'll provide the links later. Yep, we'll do that. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out. And, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. All right, let's move on to picks. Awesome. I'm going to go first today. And you're talking about secrets reminding me of an old movie. And I looked it up and it was 1992 with Robert Redford. It's a movie called Sneakers. I don't know if you remember that. But it, what prompted me is the, when you talk about secrets, I went, there's, there's something about that in a movie. And I remember I looked it up. It's like, yep. The name of the company that they had, it was called C-Tech Astronomy. And that's an anagram of too many secrets. So, oh, so, man. so if you want to catch an old movie that's really good, talking about security and Robert Redford, yep, right? Robert Redford. It's got uh, Sidney Poitier. Yep. It's got Ben Kingsley, Dan Aykroyd, a lot of people in it. So it's a really good movie. It, it's kind of old, but it's still a really good one. And then I'm actually going to do another pick today. And that is that the official trailer for Stranger Things 4 has came out. So it looks like season four is going to be pretty good. All right, Caleb. They said it's all over the place and all over the world. And it's going to be super fun. It's the biggest thing that I've ever done in Stranger Things. So highly recommend it. I do remember, is this going to be the last season? I remember only four seasons, I think, right? I think is what they said. Don't don't ruin it for us. You get Uh, us excited about... That's that's public information. That's the last one. I'm not an insider. (laughs) You know, I was... 
I was uh, disappointed that Lost in Space was only going to have three seasons. It's like, I oh. know. But I think they're going to be a, yeah. be a spinoff, I hope, of Lost in Space. Oh, yeah. Like Batman, right? I yeah. don't know if you watched the latest Batman, but how many reboots have we had so far? Me and my wife were talking today about how many Batmans there have been in our lifetime. Right. And we're talking about which one was the best. A lot. Right. Yeah. Can we get into that space? Can we say which one was the best? Or can <laughs> we choose? Be another Indiana Jones. Or, or like alienate half of the audience. Another Indiana Jones coming. So, you know, it never stops. There yeah. is? Yeah. What? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I remember, th did the first one come out bef before or after we're born? I think it was after we're born, like in the 80s, right? First yeah, one. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But still a okay. long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like being old enough to see things being in reboot like two or three times, which is good. Mm. Is it Harrison Ford for Indiana Jones? He's going to be in it. Yep. Wow. Okay. All right. So, mm -hmm. Caleb, what's your pick? I'm going to make it easy on myself this this week and just pick Disney World. Whether you like Disney or not, whether you like Florida or not, any you know, of that, your six-year-old will love it. So, <laughs> there you go. Disney World. All right. Nice. Christos? And we're allowed one pick. Always. You're the guest. You can get as many as you want. Yeah. How many? How, many <laughs> how, much, how much time do we have? <laughs> I would say uh, my first pick is uh, Slow Horses. I'm watching Slow Horses these days. It's uh, it's a fantastic TV show on Apple TV. Yeah, okay. Uh, and it has Gary Oldman. So anything with Gary yeah. Oldman is good. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. it's all about uh, MI5 spies and what have you. So if you like spy things, then highly recommend it. It's the, the British version of whatever the US version can be with CIA. And uh, the second one is the Moon Knight, Marvel. The new TV series. I don't know if you um, had a chance yes. to catch it. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely amazing. It's it's a bit confusing. Like the last episode dropped a few things, and we were like, "What?" The? Me and my wife were watching it last night, and they're like, "We're utterly confused right now." Like I don't know what what is here and what is not, but it's uh, it's very well written. I'm I'm really enjoying the the last spin-offs of Marvel and making these uh, like series instead of being a movie, right? Because it's a movie, the TV it's shows. a yeah. one hour, an hour and a half, two hours, and it's done. You're done. Yeah. At least now there's a bit of continuity. Yeah. So kudos to uh, Marvel and Disney for uh, doing that. Yeah, my wife and I really watched the it. first show and I liked it. I thought it was pretty interesting, but it was it was too much for her too out there oh. you know, the, with the the weird monsters and stuff and in his his <laughs> his his uh, condition, whatever is just wasn't didn't sit with her, so she didn't do it. But I yes, mm. yes. Don't want to give yeah. out too much, but uh, I think I saw Ethan Hawke saying that I think Blade is making an appearance in the in Moon Knight because he was asked by in one of the night shows, and they were like, "Is is the Hulk making an appearance?" Like, no, no, no. <laughs> and then they were asking all, all these different characters, and then they said, "Oh no, Blade is not making an appearance." I think he said, they asked him if he's a vampire, if he's Dracula. Mm. He's like, "Yes, I am." So I don't know. I mean, I ha I have well, to see know. see it to the end. But there is um, there is a new blade coming out at the end of Eternals. They show the Black Knight. I think it's the Black Knight. At you know they yes. do the end things, and you can hear Blade talking in that little thing. So so that's two new movies just off of the yes. uh, little bit at the end of Eternals that are coming out. They I mean that they've got it lined up for like twenty years. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's a cast out that's going to keep on giving. But at the same time, they're doing a fantastic job in creating, uh, and like the Mandalorian. We love the Mandalorian. My, yeah. my girls love the yep, Mandalorian. Which, um, yep. I just got my uh, wife a Grogu little stuffed toy for her birthday. So <laughs> yeah. you probably can't say it because you're, it's like, you see my Grogu's back there? Oh, yeah. Oh. They're a bit blurry, but uh, yeah. 
We're, my, we're a Mandalorian my, house. My son got a porg at Disney that he says is an owl. So, <laughs> <laughs> so talking, so talking about Blade and being old, I think I have Blade on Laserdisc. <laughs> Whoa. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. I have Blade on uh, VCR cassette. <laughs> no, I'm not. You got it on a VHS? <laughs> but can you play it anywhere? Because, yeah. There you go. Betamax. Yeah. Yeah. HD DVD. Man, I was an HD DVD guy. And then Stoney basically said, no, we're not going to lose again. And they just paid to make everybody use Blu ray and HD DVD died. But that's a whole nother story. Welcome to the second part of the show where we talk about <laughs> being old and grumpy about all the technologies that they took from yeah. us. I, I miss oh. my rotary phones, you know, the ones with the cable that you can take with you, you know, these giant things. Like, you were cr- you didn't never have the, the round you things just, that you the turned. 20 foot, you just walk around the house. Curly cord. With the cord. You know, yeah. The, yeah. 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 It's all the same, though. Like, you have to be tethered to that furniture that holds your phone and everybody yeah. can hear the conversation in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, right. Dad, get off the phone. You knocked me off the internet. Why'd you do that? <laughs> right? Yeah. I remember downloading yeah. my first MP3, which was uh, something like six megabytes, and it took me 24 <laughs> hours or something because people were would interrupt the downloads and they had to start all over again. The download speeds were like 1.5 kilobits per second. Yeah. Yep. Napster. Yep. Yep. Yep, Napster. Yep. Yeah, those were the I, days. I remember uh, joining oh, multiple man. multiple fifty six k modems into one so that you could get double the speed. Chaining them. You, you used to be able to <laughs> used to be able to merge them, you know, together so you could you call two phone numbers with one with each and it would give you oh. double the speed and it would. And you could, well, you would join the the yeah, packets out, that, out yeah. of the modems. Yeah. I remember going from fifty six to one two eight, or was it like a one sixteen? I remember then or one twelve. Yeah, with ISDN. And also the fact that you could get a split line that you could have your phone and your internet and in the same internet. line without having yep. to. Oh God, those were those were the days, yep. man. I feel sorry for our man. listeners. It lasted Young, this long. Youngsters will never. You know, I remember in college, I ran a BBS with a twelve hundred baud modem. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, I had I had a friend that had a very good idea about making money on the internet back in the modem days. You know how when you download a picture, it just starts from the top and then it goes like right. line by line, line by line. Right. But imagine if you could start from the center. And open up the picture, right? <laughs> so instead of downloading from the top to the bottom, you go center and then expand. Mm. That will transform certain industries for sure. But he was too late into his idea, and then uh, yeah. you know, SDL came in, and um, his dream was killed. Mm. All right, Man. all right. I think we're gonna call it there. I'm gonna <laughs> call fun. it there. Okay, we'll have another side <laughs> show behind the back in the green room. We can keep talking about this type of stuff. But there we for go. Our listeners. If you like that, you want to touch out, uh, get in touch with us, get in touch with me. I am on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Dun, 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 dun. And, and I'm at Caleb Wells Coates, <laughs> I think. All That's right. it, maybe. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> and we'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.